If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So curating. Uh... <laughs> At the beginning of this year, a small university called Lake Superior State University uh, in the United States, um, they, they publish a regular list of banished words. And uh, this year, alongside such luminous entries as Polar Vortex and Cray, uh, stood conspicuously uh, to curate and curated. Uh, so in comparison with those words, Polar Vortex and Cray, uh, to curate and curated have, actually have a relatively long usage history. Um, they're what linguists and lexicographers refer to as back formations, meaning in this case that somebody with a title kept doing something so much and those actions became such a hallmark of this title that sort of new words evolved to describe those actions. Um, and so the, the, although the verbal adjective uh, curated, as in curated exhibition or nowadays curated outfit, uh, has a, actually a relatively long usage history, about 100 years. Um, when you type it in Microsoft Word, the red squiggle uh, still comes up because it's really actually not a real word. Um, presently, uh, to curate, the verb to curate is only a draft edition in the OED, meaning that it's present um, in their online edition but not in print, and thus meaning that it's very contemporary. So this contemporary quality of curating really fascinates me, and I'm particularly fascinated by the transitive verb form of to curate, meaning that it needs an object, or, or indirect object, needs a noun to be grammatically complete. And uh, the actual, actually, the transitive ver- verb form of to curate, the oldest form of this found in the, that the OED has found, only comes from 1982. And uh, they cite something from the New York Times. And it comes from the world of performance art, which I find really telling. So the citation is, uh, The Kitchen presented three different programs of new performances from PS122, curated by and including Mr. Charles Dennis. Uh, So my book, Curationism, is divided into two sections, value and work. uh, But what ties them together is, I think, what's at the heart of this citation, uh, which is consciousness of an audience Uh, and performance. So obviously, performance is validated by audience presence, looking forward to an audience, acutely conscious of an audience, craving an audience. Uh, The performer has that sort of unique uh, phenomenon, that unique neurosis that we call stage fright. Um, And I would argue that the more conscious a work of art is of an audience, the more curated it becomes. Um, So to acknowledge these associations among curating performance, audience, and I think most importantly, anxiety, we can begin to understand the contemporary fixation with all things curated. So at this point, I just want to uh, clarify a few things about my book. Um, First, uh, the book was written for a general audience, so it's intentionally free of theoretical language. It's intentionally free of footnotes. Um, I didn't want to be academic about my handling of curating. I didn't want to mystify the role of the curator in the art world any further. Uh, Second, uh, curationism is a very particular history of the curator through the lens of the present moment. So it's a story, it's my story of the curator as, to use this, I use this phrase a lot in the book, as an imparter of value and as a performer of value. And the third thing I want to note is that I really wrote this book as kind of like a riposte to the art world's, what I saw as the art world's kind of snobbish, like abhorrence to the quote-unquote abuse of curating in popular culture. And, and then the, the associated sort of like religious understanding of the role of the curator in the art world. As an art critic, uh, I'm a bit of a contrarian, so whenever I detect snobbery, I also become very interested. 
So, and in fact, I don't think there's any reason to be precious about the professional, the so-called professional integrity of the curator, well, uh, in, in sp specifically the contemporary curator, because the contemporary curator has a very, or the idea of the contemporary curator, um, it has a long and intimate historical association with amateurism and the amateur. Uh, so, I would argue that the contemporary curator uh, works in an entrepreneurial and generally generally capitalist manner, meaning that they work towards authority, asserting authority and authenticity, aware that what they do is designed to be consumed. So they design consumption experiences. This entrepreneurial amateur curator, whether inside the art world or out, um, imparts value, to repeat myself, and furthermore, through sort of a a bastardization of the conceptualist, de-skilled understanding of work, I mean, currently, uh, consciously performs this value. So it's this performance, I'm talking a lot about performance, but this performance of value, performance of work, one that I think is fraught with a significant degree of sort of identity and finance-based anxiety, uh, what I sort of see as a sort of like a frantic and stylized metaphysical dance, this is what I call curationism. So it's a particular iteration of curating. And I think that curationism is one of the defining features of the time in which we live. At this point in my talk, I give you a slideshow, but I don't have that luxury. So what I've done essentially in this talk is I've put together sort of like an exhibition of current sort of curatorial phenomena. Um, my first example, and I talk about him at length in my book, is uh, this character named Hanselberg Obrist, who you may or may not be familiar with. Um, he forms the basis of the prologue in the book. And uh, as you may or may not know, he's currently co-director of exhibitions and programs and director of international projects at the Serpentine Galleries here in London. Um, his friends, Kanye West, architect Jacques Herzog, Klaus Biesenbach of MoMA PS1 in New York, uh, editor-in-chief of W Magazine, Stefano Tonki, many, many more people. Um, he's known for his mysterious godlike ubiquity from a young age traveling with compulsion to see art and meet artists. He's known for his war with sleep, uh, which he sees as a pesky impediment to his industriousness. Uh, he is known for his durational marathons at the Serpentine, which you may or may not have attended, uh, 24 to 32 hour long symposia featuring conversations with public intellectuals, artists, and celebrities. Uh, he is known for his interviews with such figures, which he has recorded from a very young age, and of which he has a vast archive. He is known to further archive personal minutiae from his own doodles, typically on various hotel stationery, which, which were recently published as a book, uh, to jotted down post-it notes from public intellectuals, artists, and celebrities, which form his Instagram account. Um, so what, it, what remains unknown is his relationship with cocaine and sex. Uh, my next example is Beyonce, who I think is the Hanselwerk Obrist of R&B and pop. Um, Beyonce is a child star. She began performing at a very young age. Um, like Hans Ulrich, uh, she's tireless. Uh, and I actually visited a uh, curatorial studies program in Baltimore recently, and they had a sign up in their office, in the student office, that said in b big bold letters, "You have as much time in the day as Beyonce." Um, <laughs> so, uh, in a riff, in a riff uh, on a term from David Foster Wallace, uh, the Village Voices, Ray Cummings recently referred to Beyonce as the show, the show. Uh, and I quote, a sleek, melismatic sylph with diversified artistic and business interests. Uh, as we, we probably all know, her last album was a self-titled visual album uh, with dozens of collaborators, including uh, Nigerian feminist writer uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Uh, and Beyonce, everything that Beyonce does is, I think, a series, it's very performative. She's a performer. It's a series of needy exhibitions, I would argue. And everything that she does is also recorded. Um, the picture that I show is a picture, one of the many pictures that was published of her in the Louvre. Uh, she, visited, she visited the Louvre in the fall with um, her husband, Jay-Z, who is also a raging curationist, I'd argue. Um, and uh, so, but these photos that she took appeared to be selfies and were described as such, but they weren't actually actual selfies because her hands were free. Um, and, and, and she actually employs a visual director and has so since 2005, who is an internet archivist and who, according to GQ magazine, is building a digital database modeled loosely on NBC's library. 
of Beyonce's life. Um, moving on, I'm going to skip some examples because they're very visual. Um, the High Line in New York City. Um, I don't know if any of you have visited New York and gone to the High Line. Um, gentrification and curationism are synonymous in my mind. Uh, so in the Chelsea District in New York, the High Line was significantly opened and expanded in 2011. It's a 1.45-mile-long park retrofitted along an elevated disused portion of the New York Central Railroad. It's appeared on such New York set shows as Girls and Louie, um, is in the background of count- the countless social media selfies, again, the selfie. Uh, it's a must-see for tourists to the city now. It attracts thousands of people. Uh, scholar Darren Patrick has described the High Line as a hetero and eco-normative project, and he's not wrong. Uh, not only has it curated away existing plant ecologies, but it's erased the Chelsea Pier's motley gay cruising culture and history, once so definitive of the area. A- a- area. And I, I have, a, in my slideshow, I show sort of a before and after. It's like weeds, no weeds. Gay people, straight people. My next exhibit has to do with community policing. I'm going to talk about relational aesthetics more, and I hope I'm moving quickly enough here. But um, I find that community policing, the idea of community policing is is a utopian promise. Uh, It's an idea that was essentially founded in the U.S. by the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, in 1994, I would say it would sort of be like kind of like a year zero for curationism in general. Um, it recalls relational aesthetics in uh, its attempt to A, decentralize authority, B, address and correct systemic problems, C, work directly and proactively with the public while still remaining fundamentally institutional and institutionalized. It's nicknamed the bro- Broken Windows Policing. Uh, I mean, it's mocked as Broken Windows Policing, which suggests its problematic commitment to cosmetics and aesthetics. It's recently, you know, on paper utopian, it's recently come under attack as dystopian through policies such as stop and frisk, and as we all know, the tragic death, the tra- reported deaths of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, many, many others. Um, and this is another unfortunate thing that we don't have images, but my next exhibit is what I call performative reading. Uh, and I would show you an Instagram image, but I can't, I don't, I don't have that capacity. Uh, so seeing somebody read a book you love is seeing a book recommend a person was a statement that was widely shared on social media last summer. Uh, reading books has become a heightened performance online, uh, and I think that's due to uh, f- uh, declining physical book sales, the declining presence of uh, you know uh, bookstores, and declining physical book readership. It's weird seeing that in London because you guys still have so many bookstores. It's really inspiring. Um, but you know you can now buy a T-shirt that proclaims your love of The Great Gatsby or Moby Dick. Uh, you can buy coffee cups that have old Penguin paperback designs on them. Um, so this sort of materialization of the act of reading. On social media, people curate their Sunday reads, their Sunday afternoon reads, and take pictures of them. Um, accounts on Instagram and Tumblr, such as bookshelfies, in which book owners stand in front of their bookshelves. And uh, hot dudes reading, which I don't have to tell you what that is. Uh, they, they revel in the presentational aspects of reading, which now appears to me, rather than a given that we all read, uh, a sort of a curated subculture. You're a member of a curated subculture if you read. Um, and of course, literary figures now see sort of performative materializations, and you all can look forward to the Wolf Works dance piece, which is about to open at the Royal Opera House, um, dancing about Virginia Woolf. Uh, so at this point, I'm just going to go back a little bit and give you a digested history of how we got to this strange, strange place we're at right now. Um, so my first example is a man named Robert Hooke, who was curator of experiments for the Royal Society here in London in Restoration England. And uh, I'm going to try to digest this. Um, so I see Robert Hooke as sort of an early example of the contemporary curator. Um, and, and in my book, I go back to the Roman curatore and also to the medieval curate or parish priest um, and, uh, and talk about how both of those are sort of templates for the contemporary curator. But Hooke was responsible for putting on demonstrations, and this is what I find really, really interesting. As a curator, he demonstrated. He was in, he was in charge of putting on demonstrations of material from the Royal Society's repository. Um, so this was a sort of this trove of curious specimens. Um, and uh, 
when Hook demonstrated, he was, in my mind, sort of an intermediary, which is like a really important thing to think about in terms of the curator. The curator is intermediary. He was intermedi- intermediary between the private, the private thing-filled repository and the public audience of the society. Um, so these were theatrical experiments sort of showing and explaining the many wonders that the repository had. And here, I think, is like one of the root dilemmas of the curators. The curator is a figure of power, right? But the figure is also beholden to things. Things, things in that repository, things in collections, things in museums, uh, but also to the owners of those things, and then also to the audience who's viewing those things. Um, and this leads me to the cabinets of curiosity, which are sort of like, you know, akin to this repository. And if any of you have studied art history, you'll know what I'm talking about. In German, uh, they're called Kunst, the Kunstkammer Wunderkammer. Um, so the, they, these, the Kunstkammer Wunderkammer Cabinets of Curiosity, they had curators. Um, and these curators, again, like weird mixes of amateur professional. Um, they're committed to connoisseurship. They're committed to the care of objects. And at this point, I should note that curious, curious and curator both have the same Latin root, cura. So care in Latin connotes both custodianship and taking an interest in things. Um, so hold that thought. Uh, so the cabinets were rooms. They, they typically belonged to royalty, aristocrats, wealthy merchants. Uh, like the repository, they contained sundry objects of importance, religious, geological, etc., etc. They were very sort of endemic of their time, a time in which colonial exploration was um, of utmost importance. Um, this, also this desire to sort of like house and catalog everything, all of the activities of sort of human knowledge, human thought. Um, the, the cabinets were, were exclusive. They weren't open to people. You could just walk into them. Um, but nevertheless, the curator was, had an important position in them. And I would say that like, I see the, the cabinets as kind of like little mini gardens of Eden um, with the owners of the cabinet playing the role of God and the curator playing sort of the role of Adam, right, having to tend to them. They're very multidisciplinary, though. And this idea of just like having this grab bag cabinet, I think, appeals to us in the art world, in the contemporary art world. So um, there are a lot of recent exhibitions that have been themed around the Cabinet of Curiosity. Um, we have a great, a great art magazine called Cabinet, um, which is probably based on the Cabinet of Curiosity. And um, also the Cabinet of Curiosity is kind of an early form of the ready-made. It kind of predicts the idea of the ready-made. And I don't know if you know what the ready-made is, but I will tell you... Um, <laughs> The ready-made is also kind of a still a lingering obsession in artistic and curatorial practice. Marcel Duchamp is the person that we attach to its, its innovation. Um, he famously exhibited sort of mundane industrial objects in galleries, and, uh, in galleries and museums. Shovels, for instance, most famously an upturned urinal, which he signed with a pseudonym and called Fountain. Um, and then he'd later make, uh, you know, make, make cabinets of curiosity out of his own work, which he called Boites en Valise, um, this sort of suitcase, like, uh, portable museums. In my book, I then go sort of quickly through, like, uh, what is that sort of essential to talk about with respect to curatorial history, which is sort of 19th century, for, in 19th century France in the Salon. And as you may or may not know, in the academic Salon, there was a sort of, you know, when we talk about a Salon-style hang, we're basically talking about a whole bunch of pictures on a wall. And in the salon, um, the people in charge of it would sky certain works and put certain works in prominent positions. And this ongoing activity was resisted by artists eventually. Um, and, and, and the artists wanted to take back the power of display. The most famous example of this is in 1855 when Gustave Courbet opened a, what he called a pavilion of realism right next to the building which has the salon um, at the Exposition Universelle. Um, later on, later on, and, and sort of in this moment, impression, the Impressionists in particular begin to show their works privately through the advocacy of dealers. Um, in all these cases, there was a sort of a, a streamlining of the conditions of exhibition, a cleanliness that was applied. Um, Eye-level hangs, just get the busyness of the salon out of there. And sort of, if we read art history romantically, we might think this is the sort of a, a bit, an early bid for freedom by the artist, and it was. But it's also um, to go back to performance. It's a performance of value for the work. It's an attempt to isolate the object and emphasize its uniqueness, and thereby the details of its worth. So it's also a capitalist gesture as well as a gesture of aesthetics. Uh, so moving into the 20th century, we see the innovation of the contemporary museum. 
and I'll kind of move quickly forward. We see it in Europe, um, and Europe kind of really innovated this, but at the same time that the Europeans were innovating museum design, such as Wilhelm von Bode in Berlin with the Museum Island, and I don't know if any of you guys have visited the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, but we go to the Pergamon and we're just like, oh, it's like another museum with antiquities. But when it existed at the time, it was really innovative in terms of how incredibly minimalist and clean it looked. But at the same time, the avant-garde emerges in the 1910s. And the avant-garde, this, this idea of the avant-garde really interests me. Um, so I could talk about the avant-garde forever, but I'll just give you an example of the Italian futurists. Because they're really, they're really salient here because they hated museums. They want to demolish them. They want to blow them up. Um, and they compared museums with libraries, and uh, rightly so, because these were jumbled, dusty, old, old-fashioned places. Museums were not, in the day, the way they are now. They basically looked like, a t- like an attic. Um, no labels. Um, sort of confusing, like elitist. And uh, there's, a, there's a quote that uh, is, has been attributed to Gertrude Stein, which I find really interesting. She probably didn't say it, but I'm just going to pretend she did. And it's, she says, you can be a museum or you can be modern, but you can't be both. And what's really interesting about that, that statement is that, um, especially in the context of America, is that uh, somebody that I'm really interested in, in uh, talking about in my book is Alfred H. Barr, Jr. of the Museum of Modern Art. And he was the first director of the Museum of Modern Art. And he basically proved that completely wrong. And he proved the futurist wrong. And he proved that the museum could be avant-garde. And he basically built the Museum of Modern Art in lockstep with every avant-garde idea he could find. So, so yes, a museum can be modern. Uh, Barr insisted. So Alfred H. Barr was basically responsible for contemporary exhibition design. He wasn't responsible for it, but he kind of like was the standard bearer for it. He minted it. Um, the notion of the white cube very much could be like sort of uh, 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 attributed to him, um, and uh, he also everything that he did kind of like it resonates with this idea of the contemporary curator. Um, he loved group shows. Uh, he mingled works of art from different periods into a single exhibition. Um, he tried to influence, you know, theme, thematics, ideas. And he proved, uh, in my mind, that the museum could be as thrilling and, and theatrical as the machines that the futurists fetishized so much. They dreamed of sort of making love uh, in a crashing automobile. Um, but he actually proved, Barr proved, the museum could be both a machine and a temple to machines, um, influencing their display, even their manufacture. And uh, in the 50s, uh, MoMA hosted a show called Eight Automobiles, which was an exhibition of cars. I'm going to try to move quickly through here, um, but I just want to note also that in addition to cars, Alfred Barr showed at the MoMA industrial objects in the 30s and in shows he called useful objects shows. So during the height of the Depression, Alfred Barr and the MoMA showed beautifully designed coffee cups, beautifully designed plates, you know, cutlery, and uh, essentially, so let's compare these, this, this exhibition of mundane industrial objects to Duchamp's exhibition of mundane industrial objects. It's kind of the same thing. And what I argue in my book that Duchamp, is that Duchamp may have invented the ready-made, but it was really Alfred Barr who most expertly appropriated the ready-made and, and understood its allure and actually performed its allure. So basically, like, my book sort of hinges on what came after the MoMA, which is this conceptualist moment of the 1960s and the 1970s. Whereas the MoMA was this moment where objects were placed in a museum that was kind of this streamlined, minimalist, formalist temple to objects. Everything was put in a vitrine. Everything looked incredibly valuable. Um, that the, In the conceptualist moment, it was no longer about the object. And we're sort of dealing, we're still contending with this now. So the art world turns upside down. And instead of the object, instead of material, it's the idea, it's, everything becomes about the idea. And so this is sort of becomes a project of the avant-garde. Um, one of the earliest contemporary curators, Lucy Lepard, um, talks about the, famously about the dematerialization of the art object. But this is kind of like a weird, weird thing. You know, it's not easy to articulate, to translate. I don't know if any of you guys, I mean, I, I talk about, I've been talking about this all week, but like Yoko Ono, like Yoko Ono really took the brunt of this kind of public confusion about what conceptual art was. I don't know if any of you are familiar with her book called Grapefruit, but it's basically a series of instructions for conceptual art pieces. And the idea is sort of like, I don't know, like pouring a glass of water out into a field and calling that art is very, was very strange at the time, and it's still very strange. So 
in my book, sort of, I argue that you know all of these artists doing all these strange things, all of these movements, sort of like you know pop post-patriarchal abstraction, pop art, op art, land art, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, bewildering. So many works, so many artists emerging, so many shows. Um, you know how how could they be parsed? And I sort of argue that there's this emerging figure of the conceptualist curator who tries to parse all of them. The curator's ringleader, the curator's translator, the curator's mediator, the curator's diplomat, the curator is a gatekeeper. It's sort of a completely new job, but it does involve performance. Um, my book talks like at length about this Swiss curator named Harold Seyman, who a lot of people who've went to art school probably have learned about. And... Uh, he, you know, he has, you know, he basically is, I guess, sort of famous for his theatrical presentation of the avant-garde. Um, and his background is actually in theater. Um, as, you know, if I was giving my slideshow, I would, you could see how different he was from Alfred Barr. He was kind of like the anti-Alfred Barr. Alfred Barr was this, like, very gentlemanly sort of avuncular man who sort of dressed like a businessman. And Harold Seyman was looked like a disheveled artist. He had like a beard, like a, always like a décolletage with his like collared shirt and like sort of rumpled rumpled pants. And um, he looked like an artist. Um, he put together a very famous uh, show at Kunsthalle Bern called "Live in Your Head When Attitudes Become Form." And this show has become talked a lot about in in various art schools over the years, and it's become sort of fetishized. Something that I think is important about this show and something to remember in terms of like um, a counterpoint with the Museum of Modern Art is that um, Seyman is kind of like, he wanted in the show to present conceptual art conceptually. And so I go back to a statement by another sort of a colleague of Seyman's named Seth Siegelaub, which is basically, he's really interested in the idea of demystification. And the idea of demystification is kind of central to the conceptual moment. Let's demystify everything. Let's take art away from that object-oriented capitalism that Alfred Barr brought it to, um, the way he assimilated the avant-garde. So at uh, the show When Attitudes Become Form, Harold Seaman kind of basically used artists to take the museum apart. Um, so I'll give you some examples of works that appeared in that show. Uh, Lawrence, there are a lot of American artists. So Lawrence Wiener, he shipped away a square and the plaster on the wall. Um, Michael Heitzer smashes the concrete in front of the museum. Uh, French artist Alain Jacquet takes the wiring out of the museum. So the museum is basically, Alfred Barr put the museum together. Harold Seaman takes it apart. Um, but what I think is really interesting about this is that there is this demystification of the conditions of exhibition, and at this very moment, the curator seems to re-mystify them. Um, Seth Siegelaub represented an artist named Robert Berry, whose pieces were, one of his pieces, our series, was to release inert gas into the air. That was the artwork. Um, so it was really Siegelaub's responsibility to advocate for these kinds of artists. For Robert Berry, he designed very beautiful exhibition posters to kind of, kind of rematerialize or remystify the very thing that Robert Berry had kind of demystified. And by the time Harold Seaman curated Documenta in the early 70s, artists were writing protest letters against his power. Um, Donald Judd wrote a, um, a, a takedown of Seaman and it got published in Art Forum. So basically what I'm saying is this, this, like, this demystification affects a process of remystification, which we're still dealing with today. The curator slowly becomes the focus. The curator becomes the, the person who ushers forth the avant-garde, sort of uh, you know, shaping, not making the avant-garde new, but shaping it new. The curator is a shaper. And the, one of the entities that the curator shapes is, is herself or himself. And so there's this process of self-mystification and the curator becomes sort of fascinating and vexing in equal, in equal measure. So moving quickly into the 1990s, um, in the Western Art Institution, and it's a moment that's very much a sort of a template for the time in which we live today. Basically, uh, after the recession um, and the art market crash in the early 1990s, nobody has any money anymore. Um, the art institution in, in particular... So the conceptualist curator, who was once kind of like an outlier to large institutions, becomes part of the institution, especially in North America, especially in North America. So large institutions begin collecting contemporary work, in parts appear, appear more relevant, in part because our historical works are no longer available, the market's dried up. So the curator, as a performer of value, as a leading member of the avant-garde, 
brings performance of newness to the institution, the institution that is seen as stale. So who better to come into the institution to revive it than a curator who is intimately connected with the avant-garde and the avant-garde's uh, association with ideas of newness and, 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 and indeed hipness and radicalness. Um, so the plan was, I argue, um, for the curator, and this isn't like it wasn't like people in a back room deciding that this was going to happen, but it just it happened. Um, the curator was kind of made responsible to attract new demographics and monies to the institution. In the process, the curator kind of was was highly responsible for killing the avant-garde. Um, I argue. So audience courting just really defines the institutionalization of the major aesthetic fixations of the '90s. Uh, it's it's not hard to see. Um, one of them, relational aesthetics. So the definition of that is when artists engage in social practice in galleries or museums as a way to acknowledge audiences and institutional frameworks. And the other one is biennials, which are old. But in the 1990s, over 40 of them emerged um, and were inaugurated as kind of with these like global tourism mandates. So a biennial, just like a film festival, takes place somewhere not only for the sake of presenting new art, but for drawing tourists and drawing audiences. And they both need curators and programmers. Um, and then we have the advent of the star curator, the celebrity uh, curator. Um, and we have sort of a group, like a sort of a cohort of star curators right now that we're, that we're dealing with. Their exhibitions, such as, you know, and not least of which is sort of Oakley and Wazor's uh, Venice Biennale, which is opening next week, they often pertain to social transformation, globalism, futurisms, etc., etc. They're utopian. The star curate is often a proponent of utopianist thinking, um, making the exhibition of sight of social transformation and self-aware critique. One of the important things to note about contemporary star curators, I think, like Obrist, is that they do not claim perfection. They invite, they invite critique. So again, they're part of this tradition of demystification and remystification. You invite critique in, you invite the demystification in, and as such, you you actually affect a process of remystification. Um, so you can see a lot of contemporary star curators proclaiming failure and success in equal measure. Um, you can see them critiquing the capitalist art system, of which they're inevitably a part, and also espousing an always an aggressive commitment to art and artists. Art is the of utmost importance. Um, so institutions have learned a lot from this, and... Um, I can speak of personal experience. I've written a book that's very critical of institutions, and I have been invited into the belly of institutions to talk about my book. So institutions, this is sort of a marketing tactic where you curate dissent. You invite um, events and ideas that appear to self-deconstruct, to self-critique, to call into the very question, the idea of the institution, but in the process, draw direct attention to it. Um, and then this, I would argue the sort of like the star curator's manicuring or sort of professionalization. Uh, I, I use this term manicuring of dissent when I talk about about this kind of stuff. Um, it also extends to the kind of like the weird like sort of capital hyper capitalist sort of like CEO style glamour shots that we now see of curators on listservs like Eflux and on uh, gallery websites, um, which uh, journalist Nadia Sayed has referred to. Okay. I'm going to wrap up, uh, has referred to as curator porn. So moving to the present day, from celebrity, from star curators to real celebrities calling themselves curators. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes 
Only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. So it's not hard to see the connection if we talk about it through the, the idea of the performance of value. So I talk a lot about Madonna um, in, my, in my book, and uh, I'll talk about her now. She's, she's sort of described as a pop performer. But if you think about her as a curator, it kind of makes perfect sense. She's, okay, so she's taken the avant-garde. She's obsessed with the avant-garde and the, this idea of newness. Um, so she selects, orders, and packages the avant-garde for a wider public to digest. And she's kind of famously done it. So at this point in her career, she's like basically like assimilated and appropriated pretty much everything. So this kind of thing is now like sort of a, this, every, every pop performer does it. And it's kind of, at this point, it's sort of hard to know where the sources come from. And it's hard to know if people even really know the sources themselves. Um, I argue also that like the Great Recession of 2008 was sort of absolutely transformative and pivotal in terms of this moving forward of curating, a kind of moment that happened after the advent of the internet to push the idea of curating into all of our lives. Um, let's just sort of cycle back briefly to the useful object shows that Alfred Barr did in the 1930s or to Duchamp's ready-made. Anything looks valuable if it's presented and performed as such. So we have a moment in which we que- we're questioning value, what it is, and we're also questioning the self. Now, if you look at it from a retail context, you have places like Ikea, Restoration Hardware, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, Starbucks, in which you're given a curated experience, an exhibition-style experience, and you're made to feel more valuable as a result. Um, just, just very briefly to wrap up, um, you know, now we're curating ourselves, we all become sort of our own mini museum of modern arts. Uh, we're self-conscious. We're desperate for an audience. So the real-life ways of, est- of establishing consumer identity or cultural identity, you know, displaying books in your house, displaying records in your house, displaying DVDs in your house, that's all in our computers. We can't do it that way. So we're doing it online. Um, so I argue that the Internet sort of flattens being... At the sort of turn of the millennium, there were a lot of media mergers, and they kind of flattened content. There was this flattening that happened. So in response to this, we began blogging. And then social media gave us a chance to all blog and all present ourselves in that way. Choice is really important. So we are made to choose, and that's kind of like the thing that the curator does. The curator chooses, chooses, chooses. But now we're all choosing, and we're all made aware of, like, hyper-conscious of that. So, you know, when we buy something on Amazon, it's like customers who bought... A also bought B, or if you like X, you'll also buy, you like Y. We have uh, this kind of anxiety, and um, it's really like it's sort of this needy performance of singularity. But we're all doing it. We're all doing it. We're all sort of claiming our individuality as consumers, um, however templated, algorithmed, and encouraged we are by the most powerful corporations of our time, um, Amazon, Facebook, etc. But we fear missing out. That's a fear of missing out, FOMO thing. Um, so. One of the, just very quickly, like one of the distur- disturbing aspects of this performance of value is the fact that like it's, it's curatorial work. It's all curatorial work that we're doing around the clock. And social media sites, we're saying we like things, and this is providing free market research data to, to, to various corporations. There's this phenomenon called big data mining, um, where you know, information that you've clicked and searched on is, is, has become valuable capital. So we're doing free labor. We're doing free labor for corporations. And in, sort of in this dismal first, this is actually infiltrating the art world. We're coming full circle where the art world is starting to crowdsource things. So in my book, I talk about this 2013 exhibition in Kloster uh, Nürnberg, Austria at the Essel Museum called Like It, which is a permanent collection exhibition based on what work got the most Facebook likes. So that is outsourcing is now a form of curation. And outsourcing, this is outsourcing, um, but it's disguised as like interactivity, engagement. Um, and uh, we should be asking the question exactly how definitively curatorial, exactly how much of a curator can you be when you're being crowdsourced, an algorithm, when a huge crowd is voting for the best one and it's based on what's popular rather than an individual saying that they were presenting this for you in a rather edifying manner. So just to sum up, um, you know, people ask me what's next. I don't know what's next, but I'll, I'll, I'll give some, some potentialities here. I think that the avant-garde, this idea that, like, the new is the best thing, that cultural products um, are superior if they've never been done before, 
that they that the newest thing detonates everything that comes before it. Like that that is becoming completely obsolete, and that time is over. And I'm actually not really worried about it. I celebrate this. So I don't know. I mean. We could keep going in a, in a horrible direction where um, we think what we think we're doing as curators in terms of establishing ourselves as individuals becomes more and more superficial, and there's kind of this like explode, like even like even more absurdly superficial aspect to how we lead our lives. But also, maybe we'll just come become really confused. And I've just written some things down here. Maybe what will happen is that obsolescence will become will itself become obsolete. That. <laughs> New notions of selfhood and expressions will emerge to radically resist traditional modes of curating and codification. And last, that value will no longer lean on the strained, anxious performance of the curator and the curated. Thank you for listening to me. Hey. That was great. Thank you, David. Thanks. Is that, is that on? Can you hear me? So I'll, I'll just ask a few questions. Um, and then we'll open it out to the audience. One thing that came to mind when I was reading your book um, was this idea of curating one's emotions. And you reference in particular um, the divorce of Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin, who now famously said they were consciously uncoupling. Yeah. And you write, um, curationism then seemed to me synonymous with repression, the sort of waspy micromanaging of life that ignored impulse, passion, destruction, and anger. Um, so is curationism a way of detaching ourselves from that sort of wildness and danger, do you think? I think so. I mean, I think that like we can talk a lot about how curating has infilt- infiltrated our understanding of sex and relationships, um, and friendships even as well. Um, the way we the way we see our friends on Facebook, the way we make friends through Facebook. Uh, somebody I know used to refer to, you know, when you're on Facebook and you see the, the people you may know and it comes up, uh, a friend of mine refers to that as uh, the coming attractions section of Facebook. Um, but, uh, you know, I think actually... The, like one of the inter- one of the things I find really interesting about curating, and I don't know if it came across in the talk, is that it's it's something that claims to empower, um, but may not do so, may actually disempower. So, you know, when you're when you're say on like on Tinder or something, or you know, if you're if you're gay, you're on like Grinder or Scruff or one of those many apps. It's very easy to look at these things as. For young people, for young people to look at these things as incredibly liberating and uh, kind of, uh, you know, fun, sexy, kind of like full of dissent, uh, and, and think that they're the first people to like engage in something that's so wild. But I actually think that um, what's happening with this kind of uh, curatorial obsession in terms of relationships and sex is that uh, we're where it's actually very managed and very manicured. And, uh, you, know, you know, an example would be, uh, you know, in the, in the gay world, if you have a couple who decides they want to have an open relationship and, um, you know, they, 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 they appear, they sort of perform their open relationship on a sex app by having, which, which is designed to be an individual profile, but they've taken a picture of both of themselves. And it's kind of like, it seems very acquisitional to me. It seems disturbingly acquisitional to me, um, where it's kind of like people become products, and you know that 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 can be. We can then sort of go back to the the, the Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin thing, right? Where it's like seeing everything in life as a product. You know, it's. I mean, compared to a cooking like a cooking experience, right? Like whose cooking experience is like. You know, the way it's presented on, you know, like uh, by Martha Stewart. You know, whose cooking experience is that manicured and that curated? So similarly, whose experience of a breakup can be that kind of tamped and, and managed? And, you know, it's something that we all would aspire to. Like, we'd hope that things can be kind of put in their places and be neat and kind of like be fit into these like kind of socialized vitrines. But they kind of can't be. So... 
Um, I think that it's giving us it's giving us a sort of superficial sense of empowerment and liberation, and where where in fact like it's giving us basically a narrative, um, where maybe there needs to be no narrative, and maybe it's making the very idea of like a narrative in life kind of like absurd, you know. One thing that really fascinates me about this kind of contemporary craze for curation is it is it in what ways it's a legacy of the Enlightenment sort of will to know, classify, and thereby control and dominate. Um, to what extent do you see contemporary curationism as a sort of will to dominate? Well, it's like, it's never, certainly not presented that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, I mean, both the Enlightenment idea of kind of, um, you know, the, the, the colonial dimensions of that Enlightenment idea um, to, to make everything better, to sort of create an improved situation. And you could even move that into, you know, like early 20th century sort of utilitarian notions of society where, um, you know, things can be made better in a very certain, a certain way. I think that's kind of, that can be connected to curating, but... Now that curating has become so performative and audience-based, it proclaims the opposite, right? It will, pro- it will proclaim the opposite. The, a large idea of um, curating is sort of inclusiveness and engagement. So um, shows, will be cu- shows that are hyper-curated, they're consciously curated, that are sort of authored by a curator, are often shows that are about, you know... You know, political ideas that are floating around, social ideas that are floating around, social problems that are floating around. Um, But it is, I mean, I guess like maybe one of the problems with that and what might sort of take it back to that enlightenment moment is the, is a kind of like Pollyanna-ish aspect of curating, where it's this idea that we can force people to think a certain way and we can also kind of force social change through a mere the mere exhibition context of art. And I said this in, a, in my talk last night, but I, I, would, I think it's very dangerous to leave any art show and think to yourself, well, mission accomplished, like that, that, that social problem has been fixed, or those people have been included, um, or that discussion has been had. Um, and the best, the best shows, the best, the best shows that I go to are ones that leave me sort of unsettled and unresolved. But I think with the pro- the thing that it, especially large institutions want you to think because it's you know it's basically just like a happy ending it's a happy ending thing um, they want you to in- be inspired when you leave and so there's that 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 sense of you know it's like enlightenment versus inspiration but it's kind of the same it's the, it's very much in the same pattern mm-hmm. and it is and it does it doesn't involve sort of shoving things down people's throats in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to come, I feel like I'm coming across as too anti-curator. I think that curators are actually, can be actually very necessary and can actually be very generous people. And there are so many curators that I greatly admire that are doing wonderful work. But I think it's also important to have this discussion because I don't think it's had, it, 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 it is um, that people talk about it enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just, think we've got time for one more question then we'll open it up to the audience. In the book, you quote um, Kierkegaard's Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom which emerges when freedom looks down onto its own possibility, laying hold of it of finiteness to support mm. itself. Yeah. Um, curationism is about selection, classification, as I've said, and thereby control. Is it a way to stem a giant existential crisis, what Kierkegaard calls the dizziness of freedom? <laughs> yeah. Are we just organizing the pain away? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think maybe we are. I mean, isn't that what capitalist culture is all about anyway? You know, um, is this sort of distracting us and making us think that, that we've created a, you know, a security blanket for ourselves when, that, when nothing really you know, quite lasts and nothing can be you know, manicured in a totalizing way. And um, there are degree, like, you know, there's, there's a the strong lack of surety to how we lead our, our lives and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, this is... Uh, this, this, this sort of ongoing um, negotiation and culture between the anxiety of uh, things not meaning anything and then this sort of urgency to proclaim that things do mean things um, is very interesting. And I think that the same, the same thing is happening with the figure of the artist, right? Where we're now at a time when the artist is valorized like never before. 
Um, we've exited this romantic moment in which the artist is sort of a troubled figure, a figure that is kind of a, like an outlier, a figure that um, you know uh, can even sort of be placed in the position of creating waste. Um, and we've taken this actually this conceptual idea, this this thing that people in the '70s thought was really radical of refusing to work, of refusing to you know do craft-based things, and it's now become. Instead of unsettling, you know, unsettling to capitalist norms, it's become part of the capitalist system. So we have people who are who want to be paid to sit in a room and think, you know, and that has become monetized. So it's a, you know, it's 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 just a sort of it's an ongoing thing. But yeah, I mean, we we need to. I I think it would be healthy for us to sort of embrace this idea a, a more kind of. Uh, Generous, actually, notion of culture where it's not we don't place so many expectations on it. And I think that might actually kind of uh, reduce our anxiety more than trying to pretend that everything has such a specific, you know, use and that everything is sort of ethically good. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, David. That was great. Um, should we? Has anyone got a question? Hi. Um, I was wondering if you thought the kind of transitory quality of some digital curation models might also be liberating. Yeah. In the sense that if you have um, a curiosity cabinet, you're kind of financially invested in it and materially tied to it in some sense. But if you have a Tumblr and your aesthetic sensibility changes, you can just delete it and start mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Well, can you delete it, though? Like, <laughs> that's, like that's another question entirely, I guess. Um, I I think that I mean the 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 internet I think is opening up a really important uh, and widespread ongoing discussion in ways that I think have never I don't know it's hard to be categorical about this but we're negotiating with the idea of the internet as utopia basically um, and and the internet has affected a lot of uh, a lot of sort of public discussions around this notion of utopia whether it's conscious or unconscious. But of course, like any utopia, is also sort of a dystopia. Um, they're 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 inherently um, tied to each other. So, I mean, that's the danger of the internet, right? Is that the fact that that the, that liber- things that are liberating about it can also be dangerous? But you know, I don't. I mean, what one leaves traces online, right? And I don't think that anything is complete, like that one can completely, I mean, we live in a moment where a lot of people talk about that, how it's almost, almost impossible to completely disappear anymore. And actually, there's a really interesting, um, you bring up a really interesting point because um, the, uh, the artist, a great artist, um, uh, Hito Sterile, uh, I don't know if you know if you know of her work, but she wrote a, uh, an, a catalog essay for the New Museum Triennial, which is currently on, and she talks about how well Andy Warhol's statement about how everyone wants wanted to be famous for f- 15 minutes or whatever. Um, I'm paraphrasing. She's like, now people just want to disappear for 15 minutes, and and it's really it's very hard for them to disappear. I mean, you can delete a text, but you're still available by text and Twitter and Facebook and email. And somebody can call you. And somebody, you know what I mean? Like, there's, you can delete things, but there's a availability, there's an imprint of you on those various social media sites and through various channels of connection that are hard, harder to erase. Um, so it's not a question that's easy to answer. I think it's like a moment of negotiation. And I think that the internet still offers very powerful channels of resistance, as well as very disturbing possibilities of, um, you know, sort of, Capitalist, to, let, to use, for lack of a better word, hegemony. Um, so we live in a, We're living in a time of transition where we're trying to see what we're, we're going to see what happens, um, and it depends on the efforts of people to create sort of alternative spaces and alternative possibilities. Um, but it's a good point to raise. Thank you. Anybody else? One of the artists you mentioned, Seth Siglob, yeah. I understand, dropped out of art and became a book dealer, which yeah, is exactly. interesting in the context of this room we're sitting in now. And it's kind of related to my question. Um, a colleague of mine, Peter Suchin, the British art critic, made a comment that he thought that the rise of the curator in contemporary times was the art world's revenge upon artists who had ideas above their station. <laughs> uh, well, I think what he meant was that uh, conceptual artists of the 60s and 70s 
uh, wanted to control not only the making of their own work, but its mm. distribution, its critical reception, and all those things that surrounded it. I was just wondering about how, whether you thought that curators today had ideas about their station as well. Ooh, that's, that's hard to answer. Um, one of the things that, that your comment brings to mind for me is how also in the 1970s, well, there was a sort of this backlash, this boomer backlash against people telling, you know, greatest generation telling them what to do, right? And that can be extended. I think a good analogy is into the film world where there were these, you know, the, the maverick directors of the 1970s were like, we're going to make the film, we're going to take control, um, we're going to, you know, the director will be the author. And, the, you know, I think like the artist, the, the thing about the, I mean... Art is, the art world's all about power. Culture making, I think, for me, is all about power and negotiations of power. And it's hard to, it's hard to find any kind of solid moment of like pure equity, right? It's just like the power torch is passed from, you know, between or among people. And there's a lot of, tr- there was a lot of troubling in that era. And I don't think it can, you can sort of strictly say that it was the curator wresting power from the artist. Although if you talk to somebody like. Donald Judd, he would say yes. That the whole idea of his work is that he was so particular and so exacting in a very interesting and admirable way, also in kind of like a way that you could easily parody. But, you know, he really, even though his art would seem to match that curatorial moment, moment so well, his rejection of that moment is very, is very telling. And, you know, as a, I would say, like, to make it personal and to make myself vulnerable... I think that the, uh, the curator has tried in, um, recently, in the 90s and the zero zeros, to wrest power away from the critic. And that in the art world, text generation has become almost the sole domain of the curator. And that to me is highly problematic as somebody who wants to affiliate himself with the idea of the generalist. And I think the curators kind of erase that idea of the generalist. The curator speaks in very specialized language. Uh, the curator is friends with the academy and makes friends with art, certain artists, you know, and, and, and turns away others. Um, and the, that idea, that true idea of, of, of kind of a casting a, a wide net of curiosity, which is actually not just the sole domain of the curator, but also the critic, that critical role is kind of like fading away. Um, but I wouldn't say, like, I wouldn't demonize the curator too much because it's always a power play, and the person without power is always going to resent the person who does have power. And the curator has a number of resentments. I think the institutional cur- a lot of institutional curators that I talk to have great resentments both towards, um, you know, directors, uh, you know, director CEOs of institutions who actually interfere a lot in curatorial work. They have a lot of resentments towards corporations, which are taking away the, like their power to actually make interesting aesthetic statements. Um, and the you know institutions are they might even have resentments towards. I mean, they should be working in tandem with educational departments and institutions. But even those educational departments might demean their work by suggesting that everything needs to be edifying. Maybe maybe not maybe not everything needs to be edifying. So there's a lot of um, I don't want to. I don't want to say that the curator is somebody who takes power away, um, but I think this book is, and in and, and my and my, my my writing practice in general is very fascinated with that with the negotiation of power in the art world. And as a critic, I'm actually somebody who writes a lot about aesthetics, and that doesn't come through in this book at all. This book is about the art world, but like. I'm a firm believer in, I was, I was saying this to Zoe before we came up, but like, I'm a firm believer in not, I don't need equity from an experience of art. You know, I don't need to be stroked by a work of art and be, and be told that, you know, I'm good and everything's going to be okay. I think one of the powerful experiences of consuming art is maybe to come out of an exhibition and think, whoa, I feel vulnerable, I feel weak, I feel confused. And being, being, being in the world of culture is, is always contending with, with power, I think. And to pretend that it's not, I think, is also kind of dangerous, right? Because you go into, say, for example, an exhibition that is, like, uh, you know, vociferously multicultural. And it's just, like, you get this mistaken impression that there still, there, there still aren't social problems, there still aren't problems with, like, racial inequality, when, in fact, there totally, there obviously are. So, so yeah, the idea, ideas of power in the art world are sort of endemic. And uh, I don't think that, that, that any one, one group in the art world can be uh, demonized for being being a power monger, but it's a, like a really vital question to ask. Yeah. 
Should we have one more question, I think? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, first, I would say I enjoyed your presentation, but sadly I've not read your book. Uh, I picked it up today and I've read the introduction. Very uh, interesting. Thank you very much. But I'd like to make a general comment that you know, uh, um, the, the art world, let's consider the art world as sort of principal sites of uh, social privilege. Yeah. Yeah? Okay, I mean, I, I, I would imagine your book is, is, is about that. I don't know if the art world is is a kind of target in, 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 in some kind of way, but I suspect it, uh, 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 that you, 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 you certainly address this. Yeah. Your direct attention towards the uh, curator. Uh, um, there's, and then you pay some attention to the nomenclature. You know, I mean, it is a, it's a word that we might have not used 50 years ago mm-hmm. so, so readily. We might have spoke of art historians and keepers. And, yeah. Um, you know... Guardians of privileged knowledge, yeah. uh, and uh, who would bring expertise? Uh, one would presume deep knowledge. Um, uh, the ter- the connotation of the term curator perhaps suggests that, uh, an absence of that, yeah. to some extent. So, for, so from a critical perspective, one might say that the curator is irredeemable. Uh, yeah, can we try that? Yeah, um, <laughs> and yet the artist uh, uh, jockeys on the back of the curators, so yes. the two are indistinguishable mm-hmm. in many situations, in yeah. many examples of contemporary practice. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I, you, you're, you're, bringing, you're bringing up a lot of really interesting ideas. So there are two things that I want to say. Um, first, your point about how the art world is a site of privilege is something that I think is uh, really important to acknowledge. And I find as somebody who's, is, who's in the art world that it, and who knows people, say, in the fashion world, that why is it that the fashion world is so aware that it's a site of privilege, is so aware that it's producing products for this capitalist system? The art world is just in constant denial of this, in constant denial, and it is, it is absolutely infuriating. And one of the things that I wanted... This is, I mean, I don't think... I don't think he's, like, in, like, a paragon for me as a writer... But that's why I do reference The Painted Word by Tom Wolfe, because he was one of the few art critics to actually just say, hey, listen, we're all part of the bourgeoisie. This whole thing, this whole thing, like the abstract world expressionists, we're all part of the bourgeoisie. This whole like, the idea of like, us talking about ideas and producing these weird like, avant-garde objects, it's a bourgeois, it's activity of the bourgeoisie. And um, you know, he, he quotes Andy Warhol in that book that says, you know, there's nothing more bourgeois than pretending that you're not bourgeois. Um, and uh, that sort of idea is sort of it's still it's still plaguing the art world. And so when you have a curator, um, you know you, the, the idea of expert culture, which you bring up, is really really important um, because I think we're in a moment where we're just negotiating this whole thing. And you know we uh, last night, um, you know one of your great critics, uh, Kenneth Clark, came up. And it's like this idea like Kenneth Clark is like it's so antiquated this idea the, the, the position that Clark filled, um, but and people resist it so much because it's like you know this this white man telling people what to think. Um, but there's also a notion of um, that type of critic um, bringing like bringing people in in an inclusive way, um, in a way that um, when we pretend that experts don't exist, it actually for me becomes more problematic and a bit more even nefarious um, because there has to there's always that negotiation and we're always we're always dealing we're always there, there's always that contestation we are still producing experts and but I'm really I mean I don't I don't I don't mean to always say well it remains to be seen and never come down on one side or the other but um, you know we're we're definitely at a point where we're trying to decide if we want to even keep expert culture at all. And uh, I had a friend recently post on Facebook things like something like uh, somebody explained Jane Austen to me. I just don't like Jane Austen, and I just like I just feel. Like, I mean, I have a background in literature, and I feel like this, these kinds of statements are just very commonplace now. Like, oh, what's the big you know what's the big deal about you know whatever Picasso? What's the big deal about you know all of these figures are being just sort of torn down in a glib way on social media. And so this the idea of the expert. I think it's necessary to sort of question the idea of the expert. But I think we'll find, once we've thrown out that idea of the expert completely, that we miss it. And to reject something glibly and with a sense of entitlement is also an act of privilege, right? 
to just throw something out in the gut. That's it's also an act of privilege. So yeah, it's. I mean, it's. We're, we could talk about this all night, but you bring up a very fascinating point. Yeah, yeah I think also with um, expertise. I mean, whether um, say Kenneth Clark is reactionary or not, um, with expertise goes, particularly with with art. Uh, a sense of history, yeah. and most uh, so many curated shows um, dehistoricise, yes. and that makes them, I think, you know, my, well, <clears throat> you uh, sort of demonstrated that in so much of what you said. That dehistoricising makes uh, art market friendly, um, yeah. and uh, you know, monetizes it all the more finally, yeah. or, or, or makes it right. Uh, even riper for the market. Yeah, I think that's a. I think is a fascinating point to bring up about history. It's something that really fascinates me. A few things is quickly to say about that. Curators creating their own new, new history right now of exhibition making. So there's this project to create a separate history of exhibition making for the curator, which doesn't exist. I write about this in my book, and I think it's important as somebody who was very interested in the conditions of exhibition making to talk about that because in art history for years and years it was never talked about. It needs to be talked about but that history that's being made is kind of put in place of other histories and the other ironic thing that's happening is that there are all these people who didn't have a voice before who are coming to the fore, who have come to the fore since the, you know, in the 80s and 90s as important parts of the art world. Um, You know, queer voices, non-white voices, um, whatever, um, but it's sad to me that they're coming forth in a moment in which, in the, very, in the 1990s, when the very idea of history was questioned, deconstructed, and proclaimed as irrelevant. Because the fact of the matter is, is that history, however mythologized it is, history can empower. And if you deny people their history, and you deny people a sense of mythology, a sense of place, a sense of being, um, then you're denying them power. So... There's this, there's, I think, a kind of a dangerous thing that happens when you have an exhibition that's proclaiming to be more liberated by being so radically dehistoricized and being afraid to engage with those notions of storytelling. And I always say to people that, like, I don't believe in history with a capital H, but I definitely believe in histories, and I think that they definitely have a place. And if you're constantly, yeah, if you're constantly curating things that, that don't have a sense of history, it really is... Um, you really, it really is a kind of a form of oppression, I think. Thank you, everyone. I, I know we can much. carry on all night. Thank you all for your questions. Zoe, David, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>